Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, the new treaty that allows UK forces to be deployed to Japan, as the US announces a boost to its forces there. In an increasingly challenging security environment, we've decided that the 12th Artillery Regiment would remain in Japan. It's a huge shift in Japan's defence mindset. A former Japanese foreign minister and professor of defence studies, Michael Clark, will explain all. In Ukraine, as Russia shows signs it's getting back onto the front foot in some areas, Britain could be about to hand over Challenger tanks. The big thing about armour in general is it's not about having one or two tanks that are better than the opponent. It's about having lots and using them together. And we talked to a former Royal Marine who says 12 lessons from his life in the service could help you, just like they've helped England's footballers. We took their watches off and we took their mobile phones off. They're now in Lopen Heathland. In fatigues, identity as superstar footballers taken away. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Fine. Fine. So we don't often talk about Japan, so I thought I'd dig out some numbers and start at random. A Japanese passport will get you to more places in the world without a visa than any other. It's the most powerful passport. In money terms, Japan is pretty powerful. It's the world's third largest economy, three times the size of that of Russia. And its military power is ranked eighth in the world. Japan spends about 80% of what the UK or Russia does on defence. Uh, so, Mike, is it fair to say that Japan is like that person in a meeting who, who sits there rarely saying anything, but when they do, everyone sits up and listens? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, the, and people are beginning to sit up and listen now as the Japanese, as it were, become more strategic. I mean, I've always been struck by the fact that I used to go to Japan a lot when I was director of RUSI. And Britain and Japan are very similar. We're both island nations on the edge of a continent. We both have maritime histories. And although our cultures are completely different, we have a different popular culture, different languages, our strategic situations are remarkably comparable. Well, Japan's Prime Minister is using his powerful passport hard this week. Paris, London, Rome, Washington and Ottawa. On his travels, he stopped at the Tower of London with Rishi Sunak and they signed an historic treaty which allows our troops to be deployed to Japan and Japanese troops to the UK. This is a show-and-tell tour that Japan intends to be a bigger military power and player. And that looks like a big change in the way Japan places itself in the world. Professor Akiko Yamanaka, Japan's former Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, joins us from Tokyo now. Akiko, good to speak to you. How much do you think we will actually see Japanese and British forces doing together? That's a very difficult question because we don't know yet. However, because we have prepared for a long time how we can really be a part of the world community to seek for the peace and, and stability. We need a kind of allies who can really train together and work together. Without training, it is difficult to work together. So now Japan's self-defense force is going to be normalized uh, force. In Japan, for a long time, we didn't really use the word force. So hopefully we don't have to use it. However, we have to reserve military power if in case we need to really step in. 
And Mike, has the UK got much scope to be spending time working with Japanese forces, given everything that's going on? Well, it has in the maritime field and it may have in the aerospace field, um, but not in terms of ground forces. We know that our concentration is going to be in Europe. And um, remember, too, that Japan has taken part in uh, operations in East Africa. And also remember that, you know, during the First World War, Japan operated in the Mediterranean. We were very close to Japan um, until the early, well, the late 1920s. Um, so traditionally, we do have a strong military tradition with, working with Japan. And I think that although we're not going to, as it were, orientate ourselves towards a Japanese alliance, it suits us both to look for targets of opportunity, which I think will be in the maritime and the aerospace spheres. And Professor Yamanaka, this policy of self-defence only for Japan, it dates back to the experience of World War II, doesn't it? Does it require the people of Japan to make a big shift in their mindset? Uh, actually, just after the World War II, not only the winner of the war, but also neighbouring Asian nation-states really didn't want Japan to be militarized. So that is why the uh, US and Japan so-called ally, but actually almost 100% depend on the USA, but it becomes slightly different years come. Mm. Um, so that's why now we have to really feel that we have to defend ourselves. If you look at the example of the Russian-Ukraine invasion, which put Japanese people in a kind of mindset, we have to do more self-defense force, and in order to self-defense, we have to contribute together with the other allies. This new treaty with the UK, it's about China, isn't it? What is the threat that Japan feels from Beijing, and is that actually new? Japan is surrounded by the nation states, not only China, but with nuclear weapons. Though Japan has technology, finance, and materials to make nuclear weapons, but we decided not to possess them. But China's uh, military power ex expanding year, year by year, and also frequent joint exercise of China and Russia, of both naval and air forces make Japanese people so worrisome. In addition to this, frequent missile exercises of DPRK, uh, this country is very close with China and very close with Russia. Expanding nuclear weapons looks also very dangerous. That, that is not only just a Taiwan issue, but Japan feels a little bit threatening by those neighbouring countries. It's good to have your thoughts today, Professor Akiko Yamanaka. Thank you so much for your time. Mike, what's the military significance of British and Japanese forces potentially exercising and working together? Is this much of a force multiplier? Well, it may or may not turn out to be. It's, they're, they're doing the easy things first, so a sort of status of forces agreement if we work in each other's countries. And there are some knotty issues there, uh, like disciplinary issues if, if in terms of crime, because Japan has the death penalty and we're not comfortable about that. And so that, that needed to be sorted out in terms of British personnel operating in Japan. And I think that's been reasonably well handled. So these are the easy things. And the idea is we'll get on to more difficult things later on. But already, you see, Japan is involved in the Tempest program for the future aircraft system that we're talking about. So it's a really important partner there. 
And Britain's AUKUS deal, this, this Australia-America-British arrangement, may well pull in over the years. If that is successful, it may well pull in Japanese projects as well. There's quite a lot, to, to, uh, lot of potential to work on, given that Japan now wants to open itself out to, as it were, Western defence policies rather than the, the self-defence policy that uh, the, uh, Professor Yamanaka was talking about earlier on. This to win faster, we need tanks. Six words posted on Twitter a few days ago by Ukraine's defence ministry. That simple plea had no doubt been made many times directly to London, Washington and other Western capitals. And nearly a year into the war, it's looking like those tanks may finally be sent. The UK is reported to be in talks to hand over around 10 Challenger 2s and encouraging other countries to follow suit, potentially with a coordinated announcement just over a week away. It would be a significant step in capability for the Ukrainian troops who get the tanks, but also politically for the countries that send them. Because the truth is it's not just about winning faster, victory is still far from guaranteed. In recent days, it is Russian forces who have been getting the headlines for making territorial gains in the town of Soledad near Bakhmut. Let's bring in Hamish de Breton-Gordon, former commander of 1st Royal Tank Regiment. Hamish, you know the Challenger tank well. What can it do in a war? Well, I think the Challenger 2 tank is a very capable tank, although it is um, fairly old. It's sort of 20 years old, it is far in advance of any of the uh, Russian tanks that we're seeing uh, paraded at the moment, the T-72s and T-80s. Uh, and we know that the Russians are pretty much running out of uh, their armoured warfare. And they've taken huge casualties, which uh, I think to the uninitiated um, are suggesting that perhaps tank warfare is well gone. However, the Russians, I believe, are using their tanks in a very ill-advised way as as static pillboxes. Now, the key thing with about tank warfare is to create what we call shock action. But it's absolutely essential that it's a combined arms manoeuvre warfare. And what I mean by that is that the tanks are supported by infantry, artillery and air power. And in the static environment we're at at the moment, uh, Challenger 2 tanks hopefully supported by many more Leopard 2s from the Germans and the Finns, would be able to manoeuvre around these static uh, Russian defences and get in behind them, which we haven't been able, which they haven't been able to do thus far. The only other way would be to drop paratroopers, and that, that is just not going to happen. So I think at this stage of the war, the Challenger 2, hugely capable, overmatching Russian tanks, as would Leopard 2s, the German tanks, could provide the punch that is needed uh, in the spring to be able to get behind and defeat the static Russian forces. So it's absolutely crucial that it's not about 10 or 12 Challenger 2s, it's about who else, if, the, if that's confirmed indeed, it's who else will join in. Well, I think it is. Um, you know, 10 or 12 Challenger 2s, on the face of it, seems tokenism. But I expect that is what we can provide at the moment. There are many tens, you know, a hundred or so further Challenger 2s in storage, but they will take some time to get up to speed. But it is hoped if we can lead the way by getting this first squadron uh, mobilised and into Ukraine and action ready, in other words, the Ukrainian tank crews need to be trained to be able to use the Challenger 2, 
hopefully this will encourage the Germans in the particular to get the leopards uh, in there as well. And mm. a couple of battalions, say a hundred main battle tanks, Western tanks, that could make a significant difference to this war because it would provide that armoured punch which would allow us to get behind the Russians. Mike Clark, can you just explain to us what it is that up to this point has held the UK and its allies back from sending tanks? Because the tanks that will make a difference, they'd be so much better than anything that's on the battlefield at the moment. But it would be offensive. And the West, it's another red line which the West is about to cross um, because these would allow the Ukrainians to take the war to the Russians. And that's what makes West European, some West European politicians nervous. If we gave them the weapons, they would start to take the war to the Russians. And that is escalatory. It's more dangerous. And that's the situation that we're in. This year is going to be a more dangerous year in Ukraine than last year. And there's no turning back from that. And there's no, uh, there's no avoiding it. We've got to face it. There we are with it. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, um, assuming this does happen, um, how many tanks are needed? And there's also the huge job of, of keeping them going and maintaining them. Well, you're right. You are absolutely right to identify the logistic burden, as we call it. Um, it's not a secret that the Challenger 2 uses different ammunition to other NATO countries. Uh, keeping these tanks on the road requires a huge amount of fuel and they need to be maintained. However, the Challenger 2 and the Leopard 2 you know, are far more reliable than the old tanks. I mean, I started off on Chieftains, and uh, which uh, are, you know tanks made in the 50s and 60s that were hugely unreliable and very difficult to keep on the road. And the last time I commanded a Challenger 2, you know, it went for 2,500 miles before it needed any maintenance or, or repair. So they, they are pretty reliable these days. As far as numbers, we're really looking at 100 plus, I think, to have a viable um, force that can really make a difference. What we would call two battle groups, and those battle groups would need 100 plus armoured fighting vehicles that we, uh, we know the French and the Americans are supplying as well, and the requisite infantry and air support to go behind them. So 100 plus with the right logistics in place, I think is, is very doable. The, the other piece, of course, is training. If you are already a trained tank soldier, it doesn't take a huge amount to learn to use a different tank. It's, it's just slightly more complex than learning to drive a different car and a lot less complex than learning how to fly a new aeroplane. So this will take a challenge, but there are big tank training areas in places like Poland where all this could happen. Uh, so I would hope if the decision is made quickly, you know, within the next sort of four to six weeks, we could have a viable Ukrainian tank force with Western tanks that can really make a difference. And Hamish, we should just consider for a moment what would be the impact on our military capability of handing over 10 or so tanks? And if it's not much, then how many could we send? Well, that, that's an excellent question. You know, we have quite a number of Challenger 2s in storage. I don't know the exact figures. I guess it's around 100 or so. So um, there, there, is, there is slack in the system, if you like. Um, I'm sure that the donating 10 or 12 tanks uh, to the Ukrainians is not going to um, impact our own uh, armoured forces. But the other thing I'd say is, is uh, 
two things really. First of all, the Challenger 2 was designed to defeat Russian tanks. So it is ideal for that purpose. And secondly, of course, um, NATO is there to defend Europe and the world against Russian forces. Um, and Ukraine is doing exactly that. So any Challenger 2 we give to the Ukrainians that is used to defeat Russian tanks and uh, hold the Russian military back is only a good thing. So I would be very happy uh, to see much more than just the 10 tanks Challenger 2s donated to Ukraine, because I think it's in all our best interests for global security and really the aim of NATO as well. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Michael Clark, just before we move on, just bring us up to date on the battle map and what it suggests, particularly that Russian that, that Russian advance on Solidar. Yes, I mean, it, it does look as if the Russians may well surround Solidar and force the, uh, the 46th um, Air, um, Air Mobile Brigade, the Ukrainian 46th Air Mobile, who are very good, and will not be beaten in Solidar, but they may have to withdraw if they're likely to be surrounded. And I suspect that might happen. And so Solidar might be in Russian hands quite soon, but that's a subset of the battle for Bakhmut, which is a bit further south, about uh, six or eight miles south. And if Bakhmut falls, that in itself is not strategically so significant. It would be symbolically significant because it would be the only uh, success the Russians have had since the summer at Sverodonetsk and Lishyshansk. The big strategic uh, places are still the cities of Slavyansk and Kramatorsk further west. Mm. And unless and until the Russians can take those two cities, they don't really make any significant progress in controlling the Donbass region. And I can promise you that Slavyansk and Kramatorsk have been made into fortresses by the Ukrainians. So though they might lose Solidar, they might lose in Bakhmut, partly as a result of that, they are still sideshows to the, the battles which would still have to take place in Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. And meanwhile, the evidence is growing that the Ukrainians are preparing the battlefield, as it were, for a push south from somewhere around Zaporizhia. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Ukrainians open up a third line of attack in between the two that they've created, one in Kharkiv in the northeast, one in Kherson in the southwest. They might try to push through the middle and complicate Russia's uh, thinking for the spring offensive that we know the Russians are now um, trying to orientate themselves towards. And Mike, amidst all of this, yet again, Russia has changed command of its Ukraine so-called special military operation. The man known as General Armageddon, who he talked about only recently, he's out after three months. Well, he's not really out. He's not out. But Demoted, I should say. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, you know, there's many ways of interpreting this. Gerasimov, who is the chief of the general staff, who is overall commander of all Russian military forces, has now been made, in addition to being chief of staff, that he's responsible as theatre commander. And that's a, and, and Surovakin is his deputy, and there are two other deputies. But this is also, I think, it's about the Kremlin strengthening its line of command against Prigozhin, who is the leader of the Wagner Group, and Kadyrov, the leader of the Chechen Group, who are two warlords, really, fighting um, partly for Kremlin influence. And so mm. th I think this is Putin being persuaded to, as it were, take more direct line of command control within his formal military against these two warlords who are, to be honest, overplaying their hands in their attempt to influence the way the war goes. It's got much more to do with internal Kremlin politics, all of this, than what, whatever is happening on the, on the battlefield. Now, did you make any New Year's resolutions? And if so, how are you getting on? 
We're less than two weeks into 2023, but if you're struggling with that plan for a new you, maybe a military mindset might help. Or how about some advice and encouragement from someone who helped England reach the semi-finals of the Men's World Cup in 2018? You can get all of that from one man, former Royal Marine Commando Scotty Mills. After more than 30 years serving his country, he's now using that experience to motivate and develop teams in Civvy Street. And he's sharing those lessons in a new book, Never Give Up, The 12 Commando Rules for Life. Lesson number one, don't sweat about those promises you made on January the 1st. I don't do New Year's resolution, but what I do, I make sure that I tick off something on my bucket list every year. And this year it has been to write and publish a book. So pretty chuffed for that. Congratulations. You've done it already, Scotty. Um, how did you think those 12 core values and beliefs could help ordinary people? Why, why was it on your bucket list? Well, having served for 32 years in the Majesty's Royal Marines, and then since having done the transition, and I'm now working with people across a whole raft of different industries, from pharmaceuticals to sports teams, I have noticed that the values and the mindset, the ethos that the Marines stand for is not exclusive to them. People and teams who are hoping to develop things in their lives are often very similar to what the Marines are looking for. Inspiration leaders, teams that can come together and perform under pressure. And I've taken what I've learned and I'm now transferring that into civilian street and hopefully helping people along the way. But it's a two-way thing for me because I learned I've learned so much about different industries. And I think one of the most important start points for developing yourself is to have an open mindset, to be prepared to listen to other people. Because as soon as you think you know it all, then you're in a dangerous place, no matter how much knowledge or experience you've got. And you've got a chapter for each of those 12 core values, encouraged cheerfulness, adaptability to humility. Were you taught those, like a, a list of, of 12 on your journey through the Marines, or is it a lesson plan that you've developed yourself from what you've learned on that journey? These have come through the Marines. When I went down to the commando training centre, what I saw and what I first noticed as a 19-year-old lad were these people wearing their green berets who were living their lives by different metrics to me. They were using words like integrity, words like humility, phrases like understated excellence. And I looked at them and they were an inspiration. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to try to be like one of them? Everywhere you go in our commando training centre down at Limstone, there are words on a poster on a wall. Courage, determination, unselfishness, cheerfulness in the face of adversity. What the Royal Marines very skillfully do, they take the words off a poster on a wall and they place them within you. Now, how they do it isn't particularly subtle. They make you cold and wet tired and hungry and they'll give you some something to do which you can't do on your own you have to start to not just talk about these values but you have to start to demonstrate them the marines aren't looking for the fastest the fittest the strongest they're looking for team players who never ever give in hence the title of the book in terms of the civilian population i mean do we have a different type of mindset? Can it be interpreted for every civilian in its own way? How does it apply exactly to people outside the military? Because I suppose success can be unique to every person. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is down to each individual person as well, I think. And I think that these things, if you're the type of person who's willing to take a step backward and have a look at themselves, be open to new ideas and prepared to then go, do you know what? I don't know it all. 
now's a great chance to try to develop myself. And I did that as a young man, and it completely changed the way that I thought, what I did, and how I did it. And you've used your skills and those rules um, that you learned as a Royal Marine to help some of the UK's top sportsmen and women, the GB women's hockey team, the England rugby team. And you were called Gareth Southgate's secret weapon in reaching the 2018 Men's World Cup semi-final. How did you coach and develop the England team? Well, it was one of Gareth Southgate's backroom staff who had a really positive experience of working with us back in 2002 because he came down with the England rugby team and then they went on to go and do really well winning the World Cup. So he was now working for Gareth and he said, look, you know, if if we're serious about this, let's go down and see the Marines. So what I decided to do was to get alongside Gareth straight away and understand what it was he was trying to get from his visit to the Marines because it was only a short weekend visit. And Gareth said to me, Scott, you're a football fan. He said, you know, we've been paralysed through fear of failure, tournament after tournament, big game after big game. Something's got to change. He said, I know that Marines develop leaders at every level. He said, we need that in this team, not just off the pitch, but on the pitch as well. He said, also, the Marines have got a level of togetherness where you're prepared to bleed for each other side by side. You do it on the battlefield. We need to do it on the sports field. And also, he said, the third thing I think that's really important for us is to try to understand how you perform under pressure. Because Gareth knew that the greatest teams perform at their best when the pressure's at its highest. And no more higher pressure than at risk of death or injury of you or the people of you. So, Scotty, what did you do? You made the England team do the Royal Marines endurance course, including crawling through submerged water tunnels on the sheep dip test. Just tell us about how that went. Yeah. Shock of capture is a good thing. Uh, you know, they didn't know they were coming. We took their watches off and we took their mobile phones off and we put them in the same. Then all of a sudden they're now in Woodbury Common, which is an open heathland, in fatigues. Identity as superstar football has taken away. And now we're getting them to sort of run around two and a half miles of underwater tunnels and the like. That shock of capture we use to our advantage because people do have a fear of the unknown, like I spoke about. We can use that. The Marines are good at this. What we do, we make people cold and wet and tired and hungry and we see how they perform. We strip away people's outer skin and we see what the inner them is really like when we put a little bit of pressure on them. How do they get on? The pressure of them having to force each other through a tunnel where they can't move inside it. It's dark, dirty water. It's completely submerged. And they've got to put their hand out and hope and pray that someone the other end is going to pull them through, otherwise they're going to die. The trust in each other mindset was something which we needed them to overcome. And they did. There was some trepidation. Okay. However, we helped to coach and mentor and guide them through it. And they all come through it in the end. And they had such an incredible time. I'm still great mates with Gareth and a few of the players. And I couldn't be prouder of the development that they've made over the past five, almost six years now. And it's not just down to Gareth. It's down to an incredible support team and coaching staff, medical staff that he's got around him. And I see the incredible amount of hard work and performance under pressure so that they can get to that point, so that they can give their best performance. I couldn't be more proud of them and the development they've made um, is is there for all to see, I think. Scotty Mills, a man who became a Royal Marine by accident, 
was one of the very first British troops into Iraq in 2003 and who very nearly elbowed Her Majesty the Queen in the face at Buckingham Palace. His story is incredibly uplifting and you can hear it all in an extra edition of the Sitrep podcast online now. Michael Clark, you spent years in leadership roles at Rusing King's College. Did you ever take lessons from the military minds that you knew? Oh, yes, because I, as it happens, more by accident than anything else, I've worked with the military since I was a student, although I've never been a, a member of the military. I feel as if I've been very close to them. And I think I've, I've taken two things away from it, actually, which is not to say I was good at doing them. But one is the principle of mission command, that, that you try to be as clear as possible what the objectives are and then let people use their own initiative in trying to achieve them. Um, and it's, you're looking for this sort of sweet spot between top-down clarity and bottom-up initiatives and ideas. And the other thing I've taken from the military over the years, talking to senior leaders a lot about leadership, is that they, they all say you can only ever be yourself as a leader. So you may be a type A personality or a type B personality. You may be introspective. You may be very gregarious. You can only be yourself. And that's absolutely Mm -hmm. true because the people who work for you, people you command, will very quickly work out the sort of person you are. And so at least at work, you try to be the best version of the real person that you are. Professor Michael Clark, as ever, thank you very much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts now. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, I'm off to be my very best version of myself. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. (laughs) 